1: Hello, you're listening to the Red Box Podcast. I'm Kate McCann, in for Matt Chorley, who's back next week. Coming up on today's episode, how to start a political party. Over 100 new parties have been registered so far this year. Have you ever thought about making your own? Well, we'll hear from people who started their own party to varying degrees of success. They'll explain how it works and how to avoid any potential pitfalls. First, though, as usual, it's the columnist panel.
2: The columnists with Night at the Marriott, India Knight and James Marriott on Times Radio.
1: Yes, it is India Knight and James Marriott who both join us now. Good morning. 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 Lovely to have us, have you both with us. Uh, let's start with climate change, shall we? Because we've been talking a little bit about ULEZ already, India, and with that decision for the mayor of London to be allowed to go ahead to push his ULEZ charge out to the rest of London, he's sort of winning the argument on trying to cut emissions. But today, Tony Blair has said that Brits shouldn't be asked to do a huge amount on climate change when countries like China are emitting far more. Is that the right attitude? Do you think? I don't know about whether it's the right attitude, but it's certainly true. I mean, it
3: seems
4: to me that Britain is like the really nice, well-meaning people in the small cottage doing everything they can, while you know their landowning neighbours on the giant estate are carrying on as before. So it's certainly true, I think, that rather than than kind of jumping ahead of the curve of the curve domestically, uh, we should be doing a lot more to help uh, developing economies to uh to come up with modern green solutions um extracting minerals in a responsible way and so on and so forth so yeah I think I think I think he's right. I still think of course everybody even if they are in the little cottage should do what they can um but it's a very kind of difficult thing to balance because you're asking a lot of people and you're asking a lot of people who are at the moment struggling economically in this country so I think you know beating people around the head with a mallet and saying this is the right good thing to do morally responsible thing to do which it is um, and therefore we are going to do it regardless of the cost to you is not quite right either there's got to be a kind of middle path
1: yeah i mean but james is it is it a bit of a sad indictment of where the u k is in the world because you've got somebody like tony blair who who's kind of a bit of a thought leader now in this country who's saying, Well, we don't really need to push on this because other countries are not doing it either is that a bit Is it a bit sad to see our leaders saying things like that
2: I don't know. I mean, I see where he's coming from, and he's clearly right that countries like China contribute far more to carbon emissions than we do. I think, in a way, we you know we shouldn't be too down on ourselves. There's an interesting piece in the Financial Times this morning by John Byrne Murdoch, who does all their data stuff, showing that actually there is much more support for green policies in Britain than elsewhere in the world. And I think something that's perhaps important to remember is that you know green policy doesn't just have to be only about solving climate change. There can be important economic benefits to it too. So you know, there was a report earlier this year saying that. Britain has the chance to become a net exporter of green energy to Europe, you know, a potential green energy superpower. There's a lot of economic benefit to those policies. And there's an argument that if our public opinion is further ahead in support of green policies, that maybe gives us a chance to, you know, become a leader in some of these green industries, which are undoubtedly going to become, uh, you know, more important in the 21st century. And, you know, there's an argument from self-interest as well as altruism in terms of all this kind of green energy stuff.
1: Yeah, I mean, let's, let's just have a quick listen to what the UN Secretary General, António Gutierrez, had to say because he's, he's making the point that actually we need to basically have a, have a rebrand.
3: Climate change is here, it is terrifying and it is just the beginning. The era of global warming has ended, the era, the era of global boiling has arrived. The air is unbreathable, the heat is unbearable And the level of fossil fuel profits and climate inaction is unacceptable. Leaders must lead.
1: India, what do you make of that? I mean, it sounds to me like he is trying to rebrand global warming to try and kick countries into into being a bit more active on it.
4: Yeah, I think the problem with a lot of this language is that you hear it and you just despair. You think, OK, well, if we're in the era of global boiling, we're all going to boil, we're all going to die, the planet is going to, you know perish and it's all over so what is there to do I think I think again it's a question of treading a fine line between that kind of language of despair and fear and maybe something more optimistic and encouraging that tells people that if we all pull our weight whatever nation we live in then you know there is hope I think this kind of really apocalyptic stuff just just makes people want to cover their ears and hide in a burrow.
1: Well, James, let's move on to something a little bit more optimistic, shall we? Because we're talking about... (laughs) Yes, please. Uh, (laughs) We're talking about... It is Friday, after all. uh, About politicians going on holiday. Labour's Sir Keir Starmer is starting his UK-based holiday today. And the Times is reporting that President Macron in France has asked his ministers to take staycations for fear of stoking resentment among voters. So, James, why do we care? Should we care about where politicians take their holidays?
2: No, I I think I strongly disapprove of all this stuff, actually. I think if you're a politician and you want to go on a nice holiday and you have the money to go on it, why not go on it? I think having the money to go on a nice holiday and then staying in, you know, staying, staying in the UK sort of to showcase your virtue is just sort of hypocrisy, really. I, I guess I always have a wider fear that I think being a politician nowadays is pretty relentless. You know, you're kind of being constantly, you know, watched, you know, surveyed on social media, abused. And I sort of, I, I just kind of worry that the harder we make life for politicians, the less people want to do it and the lower the quality of politicians we get will be. And therefore, if we make it this kind of constantly punitive thing, you know, where we're slightly pointlessly telling people to holiday they can go and it just begins to encompass their whole lives. I think, you know, politics begins to look like a slightly unattractive career option for good people who might want to do it, which is a kind of trend that I fear quite a lot at the moment. I think also people have a right to a private life, you know, you have your job and then you have your holidays and your holiday it should be a principle your holiday is whatever you want your holiday to be and, you know i think you can be punished over your holidays too much
1: india is that is that fair do you think i mean some people say rishi sunak for example the prime minister has already lost the battle over whether he's in touch with the country because he he obviously does live a very different lifestyle to most people he shouldn't really bother going to cornwall and trying to undress you know under a mickey mouse towel like david cameron did on the beach or pointing at a fish there's no point he he might as well go on a nice holiday because he can afford it and people already know that
4: Yeah, I completely agree. I completely agree with James. I think holidays shouldn't be performative. You know, I think people are allowed a break. And if they want to go where there is some sunshine, I mean, the problem is there is either too much scary amounts of sunshine or no sunshine at all. But I don't think, no, of of course they can go wherever they want. And of course they don't have an obligation to holiday in Britain. And also, as you were saying, holidaying in Britain means having People taking your picture when you're trying to undress on a beach, or trying to kind of blend in with the locals, and you always look weird, and it always looks kind of not very heartfelt, and you know. So, no, go to your Tuscan villa or wherever; it's fine. You're allowed, I think.
1: But James, that would mean the end of those very awkward photos, as India says, of, of politicians trying to look normal in the summer.
2: I know. And what will we talk about in the news over the summer when we can't go and photograph David Cameron on the beach? There's got to be there's got to be more important things to take pictures of. Although, I mean, you know, talking about climate change and, you know, I'm going to Italy in a couple of weeks' time and thinking, God, is Italy going to be that pleasant or am I just going to fry to a crisp? I suppose, you know, if Europe gets hotter, then maybe the UK will be the all the European leaders will be coming to the UK to escape the heat. Oh, that can would be take quite take photographs of Emmanuel Macron under his Mickey Mouse towel on the beach in Cornwall.
1: Oh, let's not. It's still Wait, Friday yeah. morning. I think that's, that's, <laughs> that's a brain image that I would not like to store up. Um, James, if you're worried about the heat, though, you could go. I mean, you've already seen it once, but Oppenheimer, of course, you've written a column talking about how it's far too long at three hours. You could just go and sit in the cinema, which, of course, is air-conditioned. Uh, three hours doesn't seem that long to me, though.
2: It seemed very long to me. And I should actually say, I mean, part of my irritation at Oppenheimer, which I wrote about in my column this week, was, I think, undoubtedly due to the fact that the air conditioning in the cinema that I was in had broken and it was (laughs) underground and it was like sitting in a very hot, sweaty cave for three hours, uh, watching a very doom-laden film. It was a very depressing experience.
1: India, do you think movies now are too long or attention spans are too short? I mean... I think. It's cool. a young person thing, isn't it? It's because James <laughs> is so young. Um, no, I really like. I really like a
4: giant epic movie, and I like a giant fat book to take with me on holiday, and I like generally i like longer things i mean i take the point that often there's a lot of waffle that can be cut out you know good editing obviously is important but but i do think it's maybe although i don't i don't i don't want to impugn james's um attention span which i expect is rather rather better than mine but um but i do think generally younger people like shorter things and vice versa
1: james what if we brought back intermissions? would that make you happier
2: yeah, people were suggesting to me on Twitter to bring back intervals. And I was thinking the interval, the interval ice cream, the guy with a tray full of ice creams who comes to visit in your seat, something I could definitely have done with uh, in my boiling hot cinema on, on, on Sunday evening. I, I guess oh. say the, 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 part of the point I was making in my column was sort of I don't think that all long films and all long books are necessarily bad, but I think there are certain problems when if you get a director who's particularly famous or an author who's particularly famous, people stop standing up to them and they're just allowed to waffle on for as long as they want. That's Uh, very true. JK Rowling, you know, her last book was about a thousand pages long and you know, who's going to tell JK Rowling to stop writing? Uh, Hilary Mantel, her last book was about 800 pages. And I think the Christopher Nolan film was the same phenomenon where if you're famous enough, no one will stand up to you. And also there's this kind of expectation that because your name audiences will be attracted to your name so they'll go and see your film you know and therefore you can just feed them as much of this kind of the content as as you want to because you're a brand and nobody's thinking about whether this is enjoyable you just people know that you're a commercially marketable prospect and therefore let's just churn out as much as you can and i think that's a bit um that's a bit depressing i see it a lot in podcasts podcasts gone forever and ever and ever and ever and ever you know people like joe rogan with his four-hour episodes and that's just because they know that there's a constituency of people who will listen to absolutely everything he has to say and therefore he can go on for way too long. That was, my, that was the real subject of my rant.
1: Stop being too yeah, indulgent. And James, you were talking about podcasts just there, but you've reviewed a podcast about couples therapy called Where Should We Begin? What did you make of it?
2: Yeah, I loved it. So this is, listeners might have come across Esther Perel, who is a Belgian therapist who does this marvellous podcast where, it's you get to listen in on her doing couples therapy. So she'll talk to two couples or sorry, she'll talk to a couple or an individual about their relationship drama. And it's just like listening in on, on, you know, somebody else's therapy session, which I I just find incredibly fascinating and addictive. And also makes me feel good about what a relatively well-adjusted person I seem to be compared to some of her guests who get up to the most extraordinary, dramatic and complicated things in their private lives that they have to tell uh, the always understanding Esther Perel about,
1: India, what do you make of this? I mean, this I have seen on
4: TikTok oh, recently I this. Her. I love I know I love Esther Pearl. She's one of my my kind of pantheon of <laughs> heroines. She's right up there. I think she's amazing. I think she's um she's really clever, she's really compassionate, her advice is brilliant, she makes you think about things. I mean, there is of course a kind of prurient voyeuristic aspect to to, to listening to her podcast, but but the advice, the kind of life wisdom. I can't believe I said life wisdom nauseating phrase but anyway the life <laughs> wisdom the, the wisdom they contain is um is fantastic and I always listen to them and then I potter off and then you know they pop back into my head and I think about various things and I think she's absolutely fantastic. She's she gives therapy a good name, which is not a thing you can say of many people.
1: Well, India, I was going to say because on TikTok recently I've seen this trend for people talking about really bad things that have happened in their relationships, you know, people going off with other people and and giving this kind of almost blow by blow but in the moment in tears, you mm. know, really emotional. Is it just that we love looking into other people's private lives? Is that what this is really about?
4: I don't know. I don't think so. I would hate to watch those sorts of videos. I'd find them really upsetting because I think the whole—I mean, the whole point of Esther Perel is that she knows her stuff. So you know, you're you're in a bad situation, but help is coming. In fact, help is sitting in the room and making a podcast. Um, the idea of somebody just being broken on camera with no help coming, or you know, looking to help from other TikTok users, looking for help from other TikTok users is really alarming to me um so they're two very different things i think
1: james what do you make of it i mean you you wrote you wrote recently i think that we're focusing on on the trivial a little bit too much but you don't see this as trivial it's not a trivial podcast
2: no relationships it's you know what's more what's more important i'm going to actually endorse india's phrase uh, life wisdom which she suddenly got embarrassed about which i think (laughs) is kind of i think it's kind of the the clue to the success of Esther Perel. I always think that's about people who talk really intelligently about therapy because there's so much kind of therapy bullshit floating around, people talking mm. about boundaries and oh, uh, I don't know, all this kind of jargon that's developed. And actually, I think often with people who are, you know, public therapists who go and talk about it effectively, actually, they're not kind of spouting jargon. They just seem to me to be very wise emotionally intelligent people who whether or not they're trained for 10 maybe this is too skeptical whether or not they're trained for 10 years to be a therapist or whatever they would actually still be pretty smart about relationships and I think that's the appeal of Esther Perel. she's just someone who seems to really understand human beings human motivation why we do the things we do and I think that's a kind of very rare and fascinating skill actually and I always have time for people who you know have that kind of emotional intelligence because then you start sort of you know, realising frightening things about yourself as well, which, you know, can be useful.
1: Yeah, uh, we're talking about slip-ups this morning. I can only apologise for uh, James's slight slip of the tongue there if you heard any uh, slightly bad language at this time on a Friday morning. But um, both of you, we've been talking about emails going awry because, of course, there is a story today that officials in this country have accidentally sent some things that you probably wouldn't send uh, to the wrong place. They're meant to be sending them to the Pentagon, they sent them to Mali instead, which, of course, is uh, is fairly close to the Kremlin. India, have you ever had any email slip-ups?
4: Yes, I'm not particularly, none that I'm keen to revisit on air. Um, (laughs) But I had one, I had one, I had one awful, awful one quite a long time ago where I was ranting about somebody to somebody else and I sent my rant to the person I was ranting about. (gasps) Oh, no. Um, Oh, God. It's so so yeah it was it was not good the consequences you feel feel
2: you've recovered yet or does it still haunt you in the middle of the night
4: no i still sometimes wake up and feel just just ill (laughs) (laughs) um and the and the person was not understandably not at all gracious about my apology (laughs) and there's nothing you can do really i mean you, you you know short of claiming that you're Mentally unwell, which I think I might have done in desperation at some point. Um, there's no, there's no coming back from it. You can't, you know, it, terrible. Did terrible. you ever make That's up with well. the person, or are you still on bad terms? No, not on bad terms. On sort of nodding politely and quickly crossing the room terms.
1: Oh dear, you still have to see them, James. Have you ever, ever had any email missteps?
2: Not, no, no. I mean, certainly not like that. I feel traumatised by that story. Uh, I can't think of anything. The only thing that worries me is that there is actually something that I've done. That I've never realized I've done and I have done in India but I just it never occurred to me and there's someone sitting out there listening to this thinking James sent a really horrible email about me to me but I, I assume that hasn't happened well if that has I'm happened very to you emailer.
1: if that has happened to you then do send it over and uh, let me know 8722 <laughs> yeah. if James has insulted you on email um do you both remember that time when the entire NHS email system went down uh because somebody had accidentally sent an all-staff email around the NHS and everybody had replied saying I don't think this was meant for me and it crashed the entire NHS email system <laughs>
4: That That's was brilliant. I'd forgotten
1: that. Yeah, it was. It was brilliant. Well, it probably wasn't brilliant if you were working in the NHS that day. Oh. Um, right. Finally, Mick Jagger, uh, India. It's his 80th birthday. He had a party that went on until three a.m. Sound fun to you or tiring? Very, very tiring. James, fun very or tiring?
2: tiring? I, I, I just absolutely my mind just boggles by this. The man, the man is 80 years old, and I'm, I'm looking at the pictures of his party on, on the on the Times website and. You know the guests aren't. You know the guests look about his age. I just, I'm. You know I'm fifty years younger than that, and it would horrify me to be out that late.
1: Indeed, Was he, was he physically
4: there until three a.m. or did the did he go home at a sensible time like ten? No, and I. Leave-
1: I, that was my first question too apparently he did stay until 3am i am reliably Jeez. told although not by somebody at the birthday party i have to say uh, i wonder whether though india we've swapped places because i sort of have to agree i'm in my 30s and i'm perfectly happy to be in bed early if i have a night in uh, and not worry too much about partying until 3am but i wonder whether whether we flipped whether young people are now happier to go to bed early and older people are happy to stay out late Well, I'm
4: old. I'm 56. No, I'm not. Am I 56 or 57? I'm 57. (laughs) I'm 57. And my new favourite thing, which I really, really recommend, is when you go to a restaurant, booking a table for half past six, you're out by half past nine at the latest, you're home by ten, and it's completely marvellous. You know, I used to... You know, I'd think nothing of going out to dinner at nine or nine thirty. Now I just find it—I just—I just find even the idea exhausting. But yeah, maybe maybe there's a the last hardcore of even older people than me who are gallivanting until the dawn. I don't know. It's quite a cheering idea, but I—I'm quite happy I'm not of their number. James,
1: what do you think?
2: Yeah, I mean, I'm very much Team India. I—I I, I mean, is Mick Jagger just kind of superhuman in various ways that we can't understand? Does he get up really late? Is this just normal for him? I mean, you know, the guy's an international rock star. Maybe, you know, he's not me in India. Maybe, you know, life's different if you make Jagger.
1: Yeah, I, I suspect it is. He um he was seen spending the evening being entertained by carnival dancers and mingling with guests, including the actor Leonardo DiCaprio, which India is interesting because I think yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio is, is in favour of younger women and not not older people. So it's an interesting interesting no, party for, for him it, to go it. to.
4: Thin pickings for Leonardo DiCaprio at at Mick Jagger's birthday party. He's well known for dating women at least half his age. Um, No, I don't know. I'm just baffled by the whole thing, but quite admiring.
1: India Knight and James Marriott there, and you can read them both in The Times and The Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription by going to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box. Up next, how to start a political party.
0: This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
1: You're listening to the Red Box Podcast with Kate McCann. Time for today's Big Thing, how to start a political party.
2: The Big Thing on Times Radio.
1: It says fade out in brackets here, but I would have quite liked to have kept that going, but I think I might get told off for it. Uh, That is, of course, the music identified with the Labour Party. Uh, Founded in uh, 1900, the Conservative Party founded in 1834. Both have dominated English politics pretty much ever since. But every now and again, another group pops up to give them a run for their money. In 1981, the Gang of Four, Roy Jenkins, David Owen, Bill Rogers and Shirley Williams, left a fragmented Labour Party to found the Social Democratic Party. This is Roy Jenkins at the launch.
6: It becomes the Social
0: Democratic Party. It is the biggest break in the
3: pattern of British politics for at least 60 years, for two generations.
1: More recently, in 2019, seven MPs split from Labour to form the Independent Group for Change, also later known as Change UK.
2: We don't have all the answers, so we'll treat people like adults and be honest about the tough choices facing Britain. We don't have the big money or infrastructure of the political parties. All we can do is direct you to our website, please sign up, and we're asking you to help us shape what the next steps should be.
1: Now, change UK disbanded in December of that same year after failing to win any seats at the general election. Of course, Chakra who was speaking there, uh, left politics, frontline politics shortly after that. But who could forget former UKIP leader Nigel Farage launching the Brexit party also in 2019.
4: Our task and our mission is to change politics for good, to change all aspects of politics in this country.
1: And I think it's fair to say that he probably did manage that. There's lots of new political parties being registered with the Electoral Commission every month, so could any of them be the next big thing? Well, Venetia Mingus is a senior data journalist at The Times and The Sunday Times and has been crunching those numbers for us. Venetia, good morning. Lovely to have you with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Now, how many political parties have been registered this year and how does that compare to previous years? Is it up or down?
7: Well... The top line is that there are more applications now than there were, say, 10 years ago, but it's actually trickier than one might think to get an exact number on this. So the Electoral Commission is responsible for calculating how many registrations and approving registrations when they come in. But they only publish on their website applications where they've sought public comment. But I did ask them for some data and they gave me the registrations for political parties by names. So albeit some of them might be existing parties changing their names. But with that data disclaimer out of the way, um, the top line is, yeah, there are more applications now than there were 10 years ago. So this year so far, there have been 126 new political party names being registered, and we're only halfway through. Um, However, a good chunk of those applications are always submitted in February every year, because the deadline to register as a political party for the May local elections is usually around March. So this year we're probably set to get a similar or marginally higher number of political parties being registered than we did last year.
1: And you've had a good look through some of the names and some of the the, the new political parties that have been set up. Can you see any trends? Is there, you know, for example, more green issue parties? Is it more individuals launching themselves as political parties? What kind of things are you seeing?
7: A lot of the parties are set up to campaign on specific local issues, for example, to keep a community library alive or to lobby for residents' views. Um, I think a lot of them are hoping to gain local council seats or maybe to act as a protest vote in general elections. Um, you know, after all, in a, in a first-past-the-post system, they're probably unlikely to make an impact at the general elections, but they are making um, an impact at local elections. I noticed that one party named the Rubbish Party which does not aim to be rubbish but aims to clear up rubbish in the Irvine Valley in Scotland, has um, secured and maintained a council seat since 2017.
1: Ah, well, we're going to be speaking to the rubbish party uh, a little bit later on, so we'll ask them about whether that is a success or what what they intend to do in the uh, coming months and years. Uh, you've also stumbled across some interesting-sounding new parties. Just take us through some of those.
7: Yeah, well, there there are some which do get rejected because uh, their names are confusingly similar to ones that already exist or they believe the Electrical Commission believes that they won't be the electorate won't know exactly what they're voting for from the name so for example there was one called the Dog for Prime Minister Party (laughs) which uh, whose dog we'd be voting for one can only guess Um, there are others that did get approved which to me at least I'm not quite sure what they would stand for so for example one is called Scotland unhyphenated um I don't really remember Scotland ever being hyphenated in the first place but you know some are a bit clearer we've got um campaign against pedestrian pedestrianisation of Oxford Street which probably campaigns for what it says on the tin but isn't particularly snappy Um, but I think my favourite party in terms of uh, peculiar names that I came across was the Beer, Backy and Scratchings Party which was formerly the Beer, Backy and Crumpets Party which presumably secured a solid supply of crumpets and is now moved on to fighting for our hard-earned rights for beer Rolling tobacco and um, crispy fried pigskin.
1: I love that. I, 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 what I don't understand about that party is how you go from crumpets to to pork scratchings because those two snacks are completely different ends of the spectrum. But I mean, all fair, fair play to them. It's it's difficult for small parties, isn't it? Because there are some barriers to entry and there are some stipulations if you get above a certain you know financial element where you start having to declare donations. That's right, isn't it?
7: Yeah, yeah. Actually, applying to register with a name, a description for your party, a constitution and a logo is quite simple and it costs £150. But as you say, the administrative burden does then increase if the party's got assets or liabilities greater than £500. And then, you know, they've got to submit information about where their donations come from, um, financial information, all those things much more regularly.
1: Yeah, well, let's bring in Tim Bale, who's Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London. Morning, Tim. Good morning. Now we've been hearing about some of the wild and wacky new political parties, but there is a serious point to this, isn't it, that people clearly feel that they need to set up smaller parties maybe to fight on issues that they think are being ignored by the the mainstream parties and they're doing it in in pretty big numbers.
6: Yeah, that's right. I mean, when you think about why um new political parties come along and perhaps why they succeed, it's nearly always because, you know, they're trying to address a demand that those other political parties simply aren't satisfying. Um, Obviously, some of the ones that uh, we've heard about from Venetia are particularly niche demands. Um, But if you look, for example, at uh, the Brexit party, you know, that was founded simply because people didn't feel that uh, the Conservative Party under Theresa May was uh, hard enough uh, in terms of its uh, plans for withdrawal agreement with the EU. Likewise, uh, you know, a more profound change would have been the Green Party, which uh, was founded, albeit with a slightly different name, in the early 1970s. And that was simply because most political parties then weren't really taking the environment seriously. So there's normally a gap in the market which people intend to fill.
1: Is that the key to success then? Defining an issue that that you feel that the mainstream parties are not covering properly, making it really clear that you're about one thing and then driving that forward. I suppose, I mean, the biggest success stories would suggest that. UKIP, for example, has been fairly successful at that.
6: Yes, I think that's a really good point. You've got to have a USP. I think if you look at, um, for example, Change UK, that was its problem, really. No one was quite clear exactly what it wanted, other than it didn't want the Labour Party or indeed the Conservative Party. And to some extent, I think the SDP uh, had the same problem. Uh, it's not simply that particular issue. Obviously, I think having a, a kind of entrepreneurial, effective leader is very important. And um, you've already talked about money, uh, you and Venetia. I think, you know, some secure source of funding is always useful as well.
1: I mean, you would mentioned Change UK, the independent group for change. I was there when that party launched and there was a huge amount of excitement and a feeling that maybe, you know, it would be very difficult, but perhaps they could be something at that particular time in politics that maybe the electorate wanted, which was a group of people who, who felt that they'd become politically homeless And I think since then, you know, covering politics, there is a feeling among the population that maybe other people get that impression that they don't necessarily really understand what the main parties are for. They don't feel like they speak to them. Is that a big problem, do you think, in our politics
6: at the moment? Well, it is a problem, yes. But I think most people realise, partly because of the electoral system that we have, that any small party, a new party, even if it does excite journalists at Westminster, probably (laughs) isn't going to do particularly well. Uh, the next election so maybe that's where they went from, wrong <laughs> <laughs> well they suffer from this this sort of problem really which is that you know there's a, if you like a psychological problem in the sense that uh, voters in the end however much they dislike the two main parties or you know some of the other uh, smaller parties uh, are reluctant i think to vote for anything new feeling that it might be a wasted vote
1: so is that then an argument to think about changing the political system or does it work perfectly well and this is just the reality of, of- democratic politics
6: well you're speaking to someone who would like to see a change to the electoral system that we have in this country um i think obviously at that point it would be easier for uh, smaller parties to break through partly because they could convince people that they were worth voting for and a vote for them would mean some seats in parliament and that would i think uh, make for a wider political conversation not just in the media and you know down the pub as it were but also in parliament
1: Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University of London and Venetia Mingus, data and digital journalist at The Times and The Sunday Times. Thank you for taking us through all of that. We're talking about what it takes to establish a new political party that goes the distance. In 2021, former Scottish First Minister Alex Salmond launched the Alba Party in a bid to build a supermajority for independence. And he joins me now. Good morning, Alex Salmond.
3: What the None of my supply teachers when I was at school looked like you, Kate, or... Or did the, did the authority by which you conduct things?
1: Uh, I'll take that as a compliment. Do you know what, actually, funnily enough, one of my supply teachers at school later became an MP and we both realised when he was in the Commons and we were having a conversation that he had taught me as a supply teacher at school in Yorkshire. So there you go, small world. Um, do he remember
3: March, Kate? That's the key.
1: <laughs> right, small parties, Alex Salmond. We've been talking uh, them through with two experts, but you've actually taken the leap. You've done it. So how successful do you think Alba has been so far?
3: I think it's tough, and it takes time Kate. I mean Alpa are heading towards eight thousand members, and if we achieve that by the autumn conference, it will make us the third biggest party by membership in Scotland because we'll at that stage overtake the Greens, having already overtaken the Tories and the Liberals so that I mean that's good growth in two years uh, and of course, Alpa's target and the proof of the pudding will come in the two thousand and twenty six Scottish elections. Uh, which has the great virtue, I was listening to the professor there, and that, of course, has the great virtue of being a proportional cam- election campaign, where it makes it much easier for a, a new party, a smaller party, to, to make a breakthrough. So that's Albus targets to get 15% in these elections and get 24 seats in the Scottish Parliament. Simple as that.
1: And we've been talking about the importance of defining a really clear issue, and yours is obviously independence, but the Scottish National Party is at the moment the place that most voters would go to if they believed and wanted to see that happen. I mean, is that a problem for you? I mean, the SNP isn't in a great place right now. Could you see a time when ALBA maybe takes its place?
3: Yes, I can. Uh, uh, and of course, the reason ALBA was formed <coughs> was because people were dissatisfied or thought that the SNP's independence plan lacked credibility. And I, I think over the last two years, although we didn't uh, break through in the 2021 elections, uh, that uh, that position has been <laughs> well and truly vindicated in the difficulties the, the SNP are having at the present moment. And the heart of these difficulties is the lack of an independent strategy. So you know, Alipa might have won the argument. But of course, to break through as a smaller party, it's not just an argument you have to win. You've got to establish your profile over a period of time, build up a party loyalty, and above all, as was rightly said by your earlier interviewee, you, you've got people have to believe that you can actually win something, that you've actually got a possibility of uh, of winning a, or, or gaining seats to have influence because of people. And that's why it's so difficult to break through under first-past-the-post, incidentally. I mean, in UK politics since the Second World War, in first-past-the-post elections, there's only two parties have managed to do it Albeit briefly, the Social Democratic Party in the nineteen eighties, and then of course spectacularly the SNP in twenty fifteen. But I can tell you, since I was involved in that breakthrough, that was a breakthrough that took twenty five years in its formation. Uh, so it can take. I mean, under first past the post. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's extraordinarily difficult to uh, to break through the. Uh, the uh, duopoly of the Labour and Tory parties with the, the Liberals thrown in. It doesn't matter how bad they are, it doesn't matter how bad people think the Tory party, the Labour party, the Liberal party are, it's very difficult to break the stranglehold under a first-past-the-post system.
1: So are you in it for another 25 years then? Because, I mean, on a personal level, it must be quite difficult plugging away when you've been in such high office, you've had a very prominent political profile, and now you're trying to convince people that that your new party is the way forward. It's going to take you, I mean, decades.
3: That's that's a fair question. And, of course, if we only had first-past-the-post available to us, you'd be quite right. Uh, All I would say about the, you know, the 25 years does at least demonstrate it can be done. And given that I was party leader for 20 of these 25 years, I had something to do with it in the SNP. But yes, and I think it's a good lesson for folk in the SNP this time. I mean, there are some people relatively new to the SNP and high office in the Scottish government who who seem to think, you know, politics is a sense of entitlement. I mean, actually, to get where the SNP has been and is still today was 25 years of endless struggle from people who were looking for no preferment except uh, the virtue of campaigning what they thought was in the best interest of Scotland. The difference is, of course, with Alipa is that we now have a proportional system which makes it realistic to somewhat shorten the 25-year timescale and make it a three-year timescale for a political breakthrough. But I can see that I don't think that would be possible unless there was a proportional system in the Scottish Parliament, which luckily there is.
1: Alex Salmon, former First Minister of Scotland, of course, who now leads the ALBA party. Thank you very much for joining us.
3: Great pleasure. Thank you.
1: Well, let's bring in two other people now who know what it's like to set up a new political party too. Sally Cogley is founding member and leader of the Rubbish Party, which we were talking about before, and aims to eradicate all rubbish from local communities. And Maya Thomas is a Black Lives Matter activist and spokesperson for the left-wing Transform Party. Morning both. Good morning. Now, Myra, I'd like to start with you because you've you've just set yourselves up. The, Transpo- the transform party is fairly new. Just explain to people what you're about and why you've decided to set up a new party.
8: Uh, yeah, so Transform, it's currently coordinated by a working group and that has representatives from various left-wing groups. One of the reasons why we set it up really is because people feel let down by what's currently on offer in politics. We're in a time of severe crisis and that could be about the cost of living, climate change, crumbling public services, and people are looking for a solution to these areas and it just isn't currently being provided A lot of people as well, they feel that the main parties aren't representing them, so they're not hopeful for the future. Both of the main parties tend to represent people that are already doing well, and we really need a party that will truly represent the many and not just the few. Like I said, the main two parties as well, who take it in turns for power, they do kind of um, agree on things quite um, similarly. So many people feel that the parties don't reflect their true voice. So, for example, uh, the two-child benefit cap, and not committing to this, that impacts an estimated 1.3 million children. And it disproportionately affects children from minority and disadvantaged backgrounds. So we really want a party that will kind of address
1: these key issues. And that is what Transform will do. And I, I mean, you've mentioned for the many, not the few. That, of course, is something that many people who've been in politics over the last couple of years will recognise as something that we heard a lot under Jeremy Corbyn, you know, very left wing la- leader of the Labour Party. Some people might say now is the wrong time to set up a new party of the left, given that, you know, under Keir Starmer, Labour does seem to at least have a chance to win a general election and potentially transform could take votes away from Labour.
8: I think what we're trying to do in the short term is about shifting the conversation further to the left. And we can do that by putting pressure on the party in power. So the odds are on Labour to win. So we can do that. And then in the medium to long term, it's about actually replacing the Labour Party as the party of the working class, so representing the many.
1: Okay. so in, in this general election, for example, if you were campaigning in an area where Labour could win the seat and transform maybe couldn't, would you ask people to vote Labour in that circumstance?
8: I think we are wanting to push people to vote for transform once we do establish ourselves as a party, as we really believe, like I said, the two parties that are the main parties at the moment are representing similar people and similar things. And Transform is trying to fill that gap of the people that don't feel they're represented and they don't feel that they have a voice in communities.
1: Yeah. Maya, stay with us. Uh, Sally, I'd like to bring you in because the Rubbish Party was founded more than six years ago. It's a slightly different proposition. um, And in that time, you successfully secured and I think maintained a council seat. That's right, isn't it?
5: Yes, that's correct. Yes, I got elected first time round in 2017 and then re-elected last year in 2022. So I was obviously doing something right. And for me uh, to pick up on a comment that one of your earlier contributors made, for me it was a dismay at local stuff quite simply not being dealt with, and all of the stuff within our communities that local councillors should be addressing. So the the the, the state of our civic areas, the war memorials, the parks, the roadsides, the pavements, which are covered in debris, dog, dog fowling, litter, graffiti and so on. It was actually out of a desire to address that. And that was why I set my party up. Um, and it wasn't to set up a political party because I wanted representation either at Scottish political level or at Westminster level. It was quite simply to change things locally. And um, that's what I'm continuing to do.
1: And have you had anybody else join your party, the rubbish party, in your local area? Or are you seeking other people to maybe join your party and set up and do what you do? Is that the plan? Or is it just that you want to maintain that one particular seat?
5: Obviously, the most important thing for me is to maintain my particular seat. And yes, I would be interested in other people joining and, and assisting in the, the matters that I am so passionate about. However, I'm not prepared to focus on that at the expense of the work that I'm doing as an elected councillor. And I don't think I could do both. And I didn't set it up to do, to, to set up a political party. I set it up as a brand, as a label, as an identity, which for me has worked. There are over um, 1,200 elected members in Scotland. I'm the one on the radio
1: today. (laughs) You are indeed. And can you tell people who maybe haven't heard of the Rubbish Party, do you have a logo? Do you have a motto?
5: Yes, I have a logo and it's a sort of R, a reverse R, and if you Google it, you'll find it, um, rubbish onwards and upwards. And for me, that is dealing with, it's the stuff in our communities that we just think, for goodness sake, what a load of rubbish. Why isn't that being looked after? Why are the, why, why is there debris? Why isn't it being collected properly? Um It's the routine stuff that makes such a difference to everybody's lives. And for me, this is what being a local councillor is. And when you, when prior to getting elected, when I spoke to local councillors to address these sorts of things it was always, well, there's a budget problem or it's just not a priority. And if it's not a big political priority within local within the local councils, the focus is very much on the main national narrative. It's not on the local stuff that makes a difference to all of us in our daily lives. And that's what I'm focusing on.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Maya, I'd just like to bring you back in finally. What, what would you say to people who were listening? What's the main... Uh, impact that the transform party wants to make what's the main policy that you're advocating for
8: i think it's just that transform is truly for the working class in all its diversity it supports transformative politics social and economical change and we've got clear commitments to fight social injustices as well we need a new party that will really change and challenge the current system and really just address the crises that we're currently in and a party that builds honest relationships and creates authenticity and empowers and uplifts its members. And that's really what we want to do
1: with Transform. That's Sally Cogley, founding member and leader of the Rubbish Party and Maya Thomas from the newly formed Transform Party. Thanks so much for joining us. That's all we've got time for on today's episode. Matt Chorley is back with Food Week on Monday. You can catch it live on Times Radio every day, Monday to Friday between 10 and 1. Or you can catch the best bits on the podcast. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from.